Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the second A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Episode of the Cold War Crash Course. Last time we dwelt on the depressing and destructive aftermath of the Second World War. In this episode, we'll focus our microscope on the set of American policies which drew Western Europe closer to its orbit and pushed Joseph Stalin's Soviet Union further away. Without further ado, then, I will now take you to the perilous year of 1947. Before we begin, guys, a reminder that you should know that this episode of the Cold War Crash Course is brought to you by BeFit. That, of course, is not true. It's brought to you by me. But I would like to take just a little bit to talk about 
the ways you can support when diplomacy fails without even having to spend any of your hard-earned dollars or euros or yen or pounds or whatever you have. So, with that in mind, what is BFIT? Well, if you know when diplomacy fails, you'll probably know what BFIT is already. But for those that don't, B stands for blog, E stands for email, F stands for Facebook, I stands for iTunes, and T stands for tell somebody. You see, BFIT is an acronym that helps you remember the best ways to support when diplomacy fails, and it all kind of revolves around spreading the word and getting our name out there so that more history friends can find us and join up with this great history party we have going on. Every single week, or lately, pretty much every day it seems, When Diplomacy Fails will be hitting you with episodes of the Korean War, so if you know of people that may or may not be interested in the Korean War, well, try and get them interested. And after broaching the subject of the Korean War by starting with a handy, hey, isn't it crazy what's going on in North Korea these days? You could then continue the conversation by saying something along the lines of, you know what, I heard When Diplomacy Fails was doing a series on the Korean War, to which your compadre will likely say, When Diplomacy Fails? What is that? To which you will respond, it is the best history podcast in the entire universe, and you should go and listen to it. To which your compadre will say, I will. To which you will say, I know that I have now done be fit. Seriously though, as ridiculous as that is, I really do appreciate you guys spreading the word about this podcast, and it still is, word of mouth still is, the best way to spread the word. So make sure you do keep doing that, and... For everything else, check out the website by going to wdfpodcast.com or if you're feeling sociable, join the When Diplomacy Fails Facebook group by just clicking on the link in the description of this episode. The description of this episode also has links to the Twitter, the Facebook page and everything else you will need to be a good history friend. Alright guys, thanks for your patience and enjoy the rest of the show. We could see the physical destruction, but the effect of vast economic and political, social and psychological destruction completely escaped us. U.S. Secretary of State Dean Acheson, speaking in 1947. Historians or enthusiasts who look back on the immediate post-war years can often discern a few important main events. If one were to list the establishment of the important policies launched or facilitated in the West, then the list would probably look something like this. The Truman Doctrine in 1947, the Marshall Plan in 1948, NATO in 1949, the creation of a West German state by April 1949, and the subsequent creation of predecessors of the European Union, like the European Coal and Steel Community by 1951. Seen through this lens, the march of progress through the ashes of Europe, the determination of the United States to help out with this march, and the overall bettering of Europe represents something of a miracle. What is often forgotten, or at least underrated, is that not one ingredient in this formula was inevitable. Indeed, Europe still appeared, very much like a wasteland by late 1946. The rapid repair and rebuilding of its industry, infrastructure and societal institutions notwithstanding. 
The major problems in the West was a lack of food, a lack of coal and an acute lack of dollars or foreign currencies required to purchase either commodity. These problems were exacerbated by, first, the absence and disorganisation of the German state from European affairs. The German absence was a touchy subject as European states, in particular the French, were caught between wishing to punish the Germans for the war, and the other war as well, and acknowledging the extent to which their economy and those of their neighbours depended upon a stable Germany for the sake of trade and the passage of goods. The industrial heart of Germany was along the Rhineland, but this region had been first extensively bombed, and then extensively partitioned by the Western Allies after 1945, and the act of bringing the region up to a pre-war standard and handing it over to a renewed German state was an immensely sensitive one. The German problem, as I alluded to earlier, would be solved once the French joined their zone of occupation to that of the already combined by zone of the British and Americans in April 1949, but such an outcome in 1946 was by no means guaranteed. The French were more than happy to try and go their own way while the Anglo-Americans cooperated in their own zones to defray their costs. French adjustment and resentment at the apparent new world order of post-war Europe and the constant reminder by the Anglo-American friends that things were not as they once had been understandably rankled the sensibilities of French statesmen. What was more, there was a palpable and understandable anxiety over the question of granting the Germans the keys to their own destiny in the immediate future, as much as there was a fear of repeating the same mistakes of the first post-war era by going down too hard on the Germans. It was all very well to occupy and restrict Germany's industrial capabilities and to try and hamper her economically, but such measures hadn't worked out for the better the last time, and there seemed no reason to assume that this time would be any different. As with the Anglo-Americans, the French were dealing with the question of how to punish the Germans for what had been done, but not to punish them so severely that they fell back into an aggressive nationalist regime. Both the British and the Americans accepted far earlier than the French that Germany was integral to the European recovery, and so that German recovery should be encouraged rather than feared. But then it was easier for these same Anglo-American statesmen to appreciate this and to look down somewhat upon the French intransigence over the issue. Neither the British nor the Americans, after all, had been invaded five times over the last century and a half by those same Germans. If the German question would not be solved until April 1948, then in the interim several insufficient solutions to the problem, caused by its instability and absence, would be posed first. Like I said, the French insecurity over the German question was linked with the French sense of national inferiority. As the French Premier Jean-Paul Sartre noted in 1945, Over the last five years, meaning the duration of the Second World War, we have acquired a formidable inferiority complex. Indeed, modern observers may be surprised to denote not merely the presence of the French as a permanent member of the UN Security Council to this day as one of the five major Allied powers of the Second World War, but also curious diplomatic developments which characterised post-war Europe. Considering the defeated, depleted and occupied state of France during the war, and the uncomfortable image of collaboration which the puppet Vichy regime conjured, it may seem strange that any power, least of all the British and Americans, could have seen the French denial of their newly downcast status as anything other than ridiculous. 
Yet the French continued in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War to behave as though little had changed. Paris still demanded a seat at the great power table and displayed immense hurt and irritation any time the Anglo-Americans failed to keep her statesmen appraised of events, which was often. The reason why the French maintained this facade of a great power in the post-war councils was because it suited all of the so-called Big Three's interests for it to be so. The Soviet Union, strange as it may sound, was aided by the presence of an insecure France in the post-war camp, and Stalin believed that much credit could be gained for the Soviets out of French suspicion of the Anglo-American bloc. Furthermore, the British were happy to prop up French egos since it suited London to have Paris carry the burden of European guidance. Cooperation with the French on the continent, especially in the absence of a strong Germany, made good strategic sense for the British. The Americans too saw some advantage, at least for the moment, in keeping the French propped up. At British insistence, the French were to gain their own occupation zone of Germany, and thanks to British pressure, this was conveniently attached to the French border and far from Soviet threats. These carrots given to the French did not keep them satisfied for long, but their statesmen found over the course of the three years from 1945 to 48 that their own policy of attending to independently pressure either the Germans or the Soviets did not work. In a sense, it was difficult to fault the French for their behaviour from 1945. France was, after all, only acting with the last 300 years of national history in mind. During those 300 years, whatever had befallen the French regimes, French power had always managed to shine through in the end. Even in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, where France had been heavily defeated, the recovery of that country had proven essential to the recovery of the continent, and French statesmen perhaps hoped that the situation in 1815 would mirror that of 1945, where a divided Germany would be required to fall in line with a resurgent Paris, and France would find the means to reassert its position on the world stage yet again. The three years until 1948 can thus be seen as the years in which the penny ever so gradually dropped in Paris. To take us back to our original point of the German question though, the quicker that penny dropped in Paris, the sooner the Anglo-Americans could expect to forge ahead with a unified, allied policy along the Rhine, and create something stable in the German lands that they held. Within a few years, the importance not merely of German recovery, but of Franco-German cooperation, would become abundantly clear. Such epiphanies had only been made possible by the uncomfortable realisation, soon to hit the British with equal force in the late 1950s, that things could never be the same again. France would find its future prestige not in recreating the past, but in forging ahead with a new European future. It took France three years to reach these conclusions, and in the interim there was plenty of time for the situation to worsen on the continent. In the absence of a Germany which they felt justified in fearing, Western Europe could never truly recover. Yet the German question was only the first part of the problem facing the West in late 1946. The other, perhaps more acute problem, was the lack of food. This second problem was not an exclusively Western problem either. Traditionally, the pre-World War II situation of Europe had allowed Western Europe to be fed by the grains of the East European states, who in their turn would make up the balance with their purchase of Western Europe's finished goods and resources. The post-war situation crippled this arrangement though, because Stalin was less than enthusiastic about allowing the West to have the same level of access to his satellite state's food as they once had. This wasn't merely because Stalin wished to see the West 
starve and get into difficulty, but because it was immediately apparent after the war that the Soviet Union was itself facing into a food shortage. The failure of successive harvests, the amateurish methods by which the new Soviet economic and agricultural policies were carried out in the new satellite states of Romania and Bulgaria, for example, and the intense devastation and damage which had already been wrought upon these countries, all such factors took their toll and had the net result of reducing the amount of food readily available for European markets. This scarcity predictably drove up prices and created a gap in the market where a large food producer could swoop in and become the breadbasket of Europe. It was at this point in the post-war world, more than perhaps any other time in its history, that the United States' capacity and ability for producing these necessary foods became so important. The flaw inherent in the American solution to the second problem provides us with our third problem, though. Thanks to an acute lack of dollars or hard currency in the west and east of Europe, any monies which were spent were spent on badly needed foodstuffs, which then left little monies left over to buy the finished goods and resources that the United States also produced. If less states were buying the American produce, which Washington's industrial heartland could create, then that meant less money in turn was flowing back into Washington's coffers. This would of course have a knock-on effect, not merely in the American economy, but subsequently on the economy of the world. The solution to all these problems, to the German question, to the shortage of food, and to the shortage of American currency, was relatively simple in American minds. Germany would have to be rebuilt and welcomed back into the European community so that it could furnish the necessary goods, partake in the continental trade, and produce the agricultural stocks necessary to make up the difference. This German recovery was proceeding slowly by the end of 1946, and it was at that moment that everything seemed to fall apart. The winter of 1946-47 was the worst since 1880. Canals froze, railway signals became brittle and shattered under the harsh temperatures, and roads already in a state of disrepair became completely impassable. Thick blankets of snow fell like never before across Europe and in Britain and Ireland, and when the summer thaw came, flooding swallowed whole communities and villages, ruined industry and drowned crops. Compounding the sense of misery was the intense drought and heat of the summer of 1947, which led to further acute food shortages, starvation, disease and a rising class of immobilised, depressed citizens. With nothing to eat and no money with which to purchase anything, the fringe parties in the West began to gain ground. The far right, in spite of French fears, remained mostly underground, yet it was the communists who saw an uptick in fortunes. Since most of the communist parties in Italy, France, Belgium, Finland and Iceland were in government coalitions, it should come as little surprise that most Europeans didn't equate communists with a terribly radical solution. If they did, this radical solution was becoming increasingly easier to justify in the face of terrible circumstances and a total decline in the European mood. The aura of invincibility of the Red Army, coupled with the apparently calm and collected guidance of Stalin, added to communism's attraction, and membership of the communist parties in the West skyrocketed. By 1947, over 900,000 people had joined the Communist Party of France, the Italian Communist Party at the same time enjoyed two and a quarter million members, a number which, by the way, was far greater than the membership of either the Polish or Yugoslav Communist Parties at the same time. 
Confronted with such facts, it did not seem unreasonable in light of the bleak situation of mid-1947 to imagine Europe taking a communist path, even with a democratic vehicle, as the communist parties continued to do so. Considering the situation Western Europe was in by mid-1947, Tony Jutt was able to note that It is widely believed by scholars today that for all the contemporary gloom, the initial post-war recovery and the reforms and plans of the years 1945-47 to laid the groundwork for Europe's future well-being. And to be sure, for Western Europe at least, 1947 would indeed prove the turning point in the continent's recovery. But at the time, none of this was obvious. Quite the contrary, World War II and its uncertain aftermath might well have precipitated Europe's terminal decline. Standing at the edge of a precipice, peering into the chasm either of a descent into communism, a Stalinist takeover, both, or simply the spiralling into a crippling depression, immediate and revolutionary action was needed. Above all, Western Europe required money in the form of hard American currency. Its people needed to know that the United States was not going to abandon the continent as it had done following the First World War, and the goods, which were urgently necessary if European industry and commercial activity was to be resuscitated, would have to be provided, and in bulk. The net benefit for the Americans in providing all these needs was the halting of the spread of communism and the revitalization of Europe to the point that it could stand again on its own two feet, both for its own sake and for the sake of combating communism wherever it resided. If America did nothing, surely this inaction would only be to the benefit of Stalin and his communist allies. To do nothing would mean to hand the shattered West on a platter to Stalin, to expand the writ of the Soviet Union and to guarantee the entrenchment of communism everywhere. Indeed, if affairs continued as they were, with the atmosphere of intense and crippling hopelessness compounding the practical woes of the moment, then civil war and societal collapse would surely encourage Stalin to take advantage, even if the native communist parties in the West hesitated to welcome the Red Army in. Imagining the consequences of such an action had the effect of sharpening US attitudes towards Europe and the Soviet Union generally, a hardening which was clarified at the announcement of the Truman Doctrine in spring 1947, which we'll look at in more detail in a future episode. When US Secretary of State George C. Marshall returned to Washington from a meeting of Allied foreign ministers in late April 1947, he had been left intensely concerned and disappointed at the situation. The Soviets were plainly unwilling to discuss the matter of German reunification or rebuilding, but what had really struck Marshall was the low confidence of his European colleagues at that same conference. The mood was one of resignation, of doom and of a particularly bleak outlook on Europe's future. Under these circumstances, Marshall impressed upon his well-informed peers of the importance of a new policy, one which was unrecognisable when compared to the policy of that same country in the aftermath of the First World War. What Marshall was proposing came to be known as the Marshall Plan, and it detailed an extensive programme of aid and grants given to the economies and governments of Western and Central Europe. In its early phases, before the Soviet refusal to partake in the plan, Marshall's strategy did not actually exclude those countries in the East under Soviet control. Such a fact only further underlines the revolutionary nature of the plan, and that it was designed for a European recovery rather than merely a recovery of America's friends. 
Marshall announced the plan to an audience at Harvard University on the 5th of June 1947, and the following month the foreign ministers of the United Kingdom, the USSR and France met in Paris to consider their response. The USSR, led by the veteran statesman Molotov, walked out of the conference, and with that, Moscow doomed its satellites to suffer. Initially open to the prospect of the Marshall Plan, the delegates of Poland, the Ukraine, Hungary, Bulgaria, Albania and Czechoslovakia were hardly about to welcome a Western initiative without their overlord's blessing, and thus the Soviet bloc seemed resigned to miss out on the free aid which had initially been coming its way. Such a Soviet rejection made Truman's job far easier, of course, because he could present the idea to Congress as one which would aid the Western Europeans, as one which would aid America's friends, and thus avoid all criticism of the plan in light of its potential to also aid the communist East. Listen here to how Marshall explains his plan. Aside from the demoralizing effect on the world at large, and the possibilities of disturbances arising as a result of the desperate desperation of the people concerned, the consequences to the economy of the United States should be apparent to all. It is logical that the United States should do whatever it is able to do to assist in the return of normal economic health in the world, without which there can be no political stability and no assured peace. Our policy is directed not against any country or doctrine, but against hunger, poverty, desperation, and chaos. Its purpose should be the revival of a working economy in the world so as to permit the emergence of political and social conditions in which free institutions can exist. Such assistance, I am convinced, must not be on a piecemeal basis as various crises develop. Any assistance that this government may render in the future should provide a cure rather than a mere palliative. Any government that is willing to assist in the task of recovery will find full cooperation, I am sure, on the part of the United States government. Any government which maneuvers to block the recovery of other countries cannot expect help from us. Furthermore... Furthermore, governments, political parties, or groups which seek to perpetuate human misery in order to profit therefrom politically or otherwise will encounter the opposition of the United States. In the end, Britain, France, Italy, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, Greece, Turkey, Iceland, Austria, Portugal, and even Ireland were among the eventual beneficiaries of the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan's total cost of 13 billion in 1940s dollars is the equivalent, roughly, of 132 billion dollars in today's currency. What was more significant about the whole plan was the relative lack of attached strings. In comparison to previous short-term loans to Britain and France, Designed to meet immediate shortfalls and emergency requirements, the plan left it up to the Europeans to do with the money what they wished. Seen in this view, it must be wondered why Stalin opted to bow out and force his satellites to bow out of the plan with him. 
The simple answer is that Stalin was eternally suspicious of any initiative which came from the West, and that the concept of mutual advantage through the collective repairing of Europe's economy seemed too good to be true. Indeed, it is not surprising that neither Stalin nor his allies could bring themselves to believe that America wanted nothing concrete in return for its promises to grant Europe such vast sums of money and goods in kind. What is certain, though, is that, in retrospect, Stalin's refusal to accept the Marshall Plan represented the greatest mistake of his rule, and proved catastrophic not merely in the desperately needy countries like Poland, Romania and Czechoslovakia, but also to the Soviet Union itself. In a theme which would be repeated for the years to come, the Marshall Plan was not formulated for the express purpose of giving Europeans some money. Instead, as Marshall himself put it, the goal of the plan was to break the vicious cycle and restore the confidence of the European people in the economic future of their own countries and Europe as a whole. Like I mentioned, money was not the only commodity which was granted, but also finished American goods in the different sectors of Europe which were desperately in need. The agricultural, industrial and military sectors all received quality American finished goods for free, which could then be sold in the country as desired to create some local funds which could then be used to purchase American goods in other sectors or to purchase dollar reserves. Italy, in particular, was known for hoarding as much dollars as possible, largely in anticipation of the day that its government would be required to expel the Communist Party with American backing. An interesting byproduct of the Marshall Plan was that, by flooding Europe with quality goods which were in demand, the Europeans had to plan and deal with one another in new and innovative ways. Trading and exchanging goods required in turn the increased output in the different countries to meet with this upturn in trade and commerce, and it provided, in effect, a kick in the backside of European industry and production as a result. If the Soviets were suspicious of the American generosity, Western Europeans were also confused at the change in the traditionally blunt and self-interested American treatment of Europe. The influx of so many American goods and monies led logically to an influx in American influences and ideas which in turn compelled many Europeans to take advantage of the situation by travelling to America themselves to see how these generous Americans did business. The Marshall Plan was presented as the European Recovery Programme, or ERP, and its funds and resources were filtered through another organisation, known as the Organisation for European Economic Cooperation, which was set up in 1948. The creation of these organisations suggested a strictly European flavour to the Marshall Plan, even while the necessary ingredients undoubtedly came from the Americans. The implied reason for this was that Washington wished to see greater European cooperation on not merely the economic but the political level, and believed, correctly as it turned out, that by fostering economic ties between the post-war Europeans, political ties would follow more easily. Yet, the results of these ambitious policies were not immediate, and Europeans would take a few years to properly accept and adapt to this new arrangement. The urgings of American agents which accompanied the aid were not always welcome, either. To a degree, Europeans also resented Washington's advice that the ERP's processes would be easier to implement if all Europeans 
would adopt the American ways in terms of free trade, international collaboration and interstate integration. Indeed, fostering European cooperation would take a load off of the American plate of responsibilities and, as emphasised before, instill a new confidence in that region where it had once been so low. The eventual result of the economic injections was that the Americans sponsored the European Payments Union in late 1950, which facilitated easier transfers of credit between European states and in turn led to a greater transfer of monies between those states in Western Europe. It was in the United States' interest to revitalise Europe, to rebuild her largest trading partner, and the intention was not, despite what the critics may have insisted in the Communist parties, to reduce Europe to an American economic dependency. This would have helped no one, after all, least of all the Americans, who needed a strong and stable Europe to trade with and to cooperate with militarily. Another significant and more relevant aspect of the Marshall Plan in the context of the Cold War was the idea that Europe in 1947 faced a choice, not merely between recovery or collapse, but between continued independence or insignificance, the domination of Europe east and west by the supreme and ever-present Soviet bloc. It remained to be seen in 1947 precisely how far Stalin would push the envelope, whether he would intervene in the West to the extent that some in the Truman administration feared and expected that he would. Yet what was not in doubt was that by the end of the year of 1947, Europeans had turned the corner and decided to forge ahead regardless of the bleak outlook, where before such bleak circumstances had weighed so heavily down upon them. The greatest danger to the security of the United States, argued a CIA report in April 1947, is the possibility of economic collapse in Western Europe and the consequent ascension to power of communist elements. The vulnerability of Europe was an acute problem to US policy makers, whereas Stalin viewed the depression and ominous slump of 1947 as an opportunity which, by biding his time, he could avail of a new set of territories which were helpless to resist. This did not mean that Stalin intended to invade, but to a large extent he did not expect that he would need to. After all, we must bear in mind that until the outbreak of the Korean War, and in certain intervals during that conflict, Stalin expected to hear of the outbreak of a war between liberal America and imperialist Britain, strange as this may sound. Britain would wage a destructive war against the Americans for the sake of its old position, and the USSR would be able to creep in the back door through native governmental institutions or other convenient means and reap the spoils. Of course, no war came between the United States and the United Kingdom, and neither London nor Washington thought or acted in terms of conflict, but cooperation. It was imperative that Europe be secured, revitalised and brought firmly together as a united Western bloc of mutually friendly and cooperative states with the same goals and, as close as was possible, the same interests. By the end of 1947, such aims represented the building blocks of the Marshall Plan, and by lowering the risks posed by a sickly post-war West, Europeans would be able to stand on their own two feet, militarily and economically, and even if they could not do so immediately, the plan gave them the psychological boost to believe that one day this would soon be possible. 1947 was thus the year that Western Europe turned a corner, abandoned its post-war exhaustion, 
and looked forward to a new future of closer economic cooperation. Such cooperation led not always straightforwardly to the European coal and steel community in 1951, but the supranational cooperation which characterized that organization and the striking Franco-German cooperation which made it all possible was a signal that, even if things would never be the same again on the continent, things would at least be safe. Next time, we'll continue our Cold War crash course with an examination of the situation in Eastern Europe, in the lands of the USSR. We'll look at Stalin's outlook on the post-war world, how he managed to expand the Soviet Union's writ, and how he could, on occasion, go too far. Until then, though, thanks for listening, history friends and patrons. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.